As I think about that, I want to start with a question this morning, a um, very honest question. The question is, why are you here? Why are you here? You personally, why did you come to this place this morning? Some of you are here. I know full well. I understand this because I was in this place for a lot of years. Some of you are here because you are forced to be here. You're made to be here. Mom and dad said, hey, junior, you've got no choice. Get to church. Some of you are here because husband or wife, your spouse, goaded you and guilted you into being here. Some of you are here because you're forced to be here. Others of you are here because you have come here out of obligation. It's what you've always done. Maybe you have grown up going to church. Maybe your mom and dad have brought you since you've been little. It's just what you do on a Sunday morning. But the reality for most of you, I believe this with all my heart, most of you are here not for either of those reasons. Most of you are here because in some way, in some capacity, you hope to grow in your spiritual walk, in your journey with who God is. Most of you come here, it's a day where the sun is beginning to peek out of the clouds. You don't have to be here. You could be in your pool. You could be out with a picnic with your family. You could be on vacation. You could be doing something other than being here. But most of you, I believe all my heart, come here because you want to grow. You believe in some capacity that being here, opening up God's word, meeting with his people is going to in some way help you grow and understand who he is. So I believe that. The reality is this. The passage we're going to look at this morning gives us, in my opinion, one of the number one deterrents to that growth that you desire as you sit here this morning. To that deep, intimate relationship with the creator God of the universe, the one who has fearfully and wonderfully made you. This passage is going to open up and lay it bare, the the barrier that exists for many of us to really step out in growth. It's the barrier that kept Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, from deeply experiencing God and who he was after they had made poor choices. It's the thing that as I have worked as a pastor counseling and working with people for years in my office or at the lunch table or in my home. It is the number, I bet 95% of those that I work with and have worked with, I could lay this, what John talks about at the root of what keeps them from finding victory in their life. And more than that, for me personally, it lays at the very core of who I am. What John opens up with here in first John, in my opinion, is my biggest struggle in my spiritual growth. You know what it is? Shame and guilt. We love it. You say, what does that mean? We do. Especially those in the church, we cling to it. We use it. We use it to manipulate and to move and to to challenge and to grow. But God comes and says, there is no room for it in my economy of growth. And I've come to free you from it. To understand that God is for you. He is a good God. He loves and he has come to make sure that you understand when you can stand before him free and clear without condemnation, without shame and guilt. I want to show you a picture. It's a sign. Someone here at Bethany uh, was on vacation recently in Florida. They posted this then on my Facebook wall and they said they think Pastor Adam was following them on their vacation. I wish I had the money that it cost to do that so I can assure them that wasn't me. But I would love to fly that sign over Lancaster County. I would love it. See, have you ever thought about signs and what they communicate? I want to share a little secret. Please don't steal this. It's an idea Tanya and I. I'm going to share it with you because I trust you. Tanya and I have, it's actually more her idea than it's been mine, but I really jumped on it. We would love to publish a book, a picture book of all the signs that Christians put out to the world. Whether it's a sign that I put on my t-shirt, whether it's a sign that I put on the bumper of my car, or whether it's a sign that we put on the marquee of our church, or whether it's the sign that we stick in our front yard. You look at them all around. There's Christian signs all over the place. The question that has always challenged Tanya and I is to stop and say, what does that sign really communicate to the world? That's why we're wearing them, right? That's why we put signs out there, because we want to communicate to those who don't know God. Now, as you drive around in this area, and it's the same thing when I lived in Mifflin County, we saw them all over the place. There are religious signs staked all over the place. Here's one. I I just went out this week and had to travel no more than two miles from my house till I hit the first one. This is on Martindale, headed over between Terry Hill and Martindale. You read that sign. I don't want to attack that farmer. I'm not here to, to 
be negative on him. But what does that sign communicate to this world? An ungodly man, first of all, who, who talks like that anymore? Diggeth up evil. But an ungodly man diggeth up evil. Now they quote it as it's coming from the Bible, and it is, it's in the Bible. People who do not love God find themselves in a heap of trouble and pursuing evil ends. But when you drive by that, what does, really think about it, what does that communicate to an unsaved world? A world that doesn't know Jesus, a world that doesn't, isn't here this morning, a world that, that is far, in, as the Bible teaches us, from God. What does that communicate? And what I see in this sign and so many that we as Christians put out on our billboards and other places is it's loaded with guilt and shame. It's loaded with a God who is in heaven shaking his fist, a God who has some kind of perfect, perfect standard that if you don't attain, he's going to get you. Now, let me be real clear with something. Some of you will say, well, now, wait a minute, Adam. The Bible teaches that God is holy. God is perfect. We already saw that in 1 John. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And to be true to the Bible, when you preach the message of Jesus, you have got to preach and condemn and push against sin. You know my response is to that? Amen. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly, I agree. I've learned something over my years in ministry. If I'm going to stand and preach against sin, there's one other thing I must stand and preach against. Do you know what it is? Religion. See, we have this propensity to hammer and harp on sin because the Bible does. The Bible is clear. If I am going to be in an intimate relationship with the creator God of the universe, I cannot, the sin does not, cannot be a part of me. But the reality is I am a sinner. So we have this propensity to do is we, we try and get all cleaned up and we work really hard and we start obeying the rules and obeying the laws and we work our tails off towards all the good things we can possibly imagine. And all we're a lot of times doing is sheltering ourselves and pulling ourselves away from them in that world. But the reality is, guess what still holds true of my heart? The Bible teaches that we are wicked to the core, all of us. And the Bible teaches that the only answer to that is not within myself. It's from outside of myself. Grace. It's unmerited favor. It's something that I can't work for and earn. Religion. I'm not talking about pure and healthy religion. Religion, though, teaches I can do something about this problem. Grace does not teach that. Grace does not harp on guilt and and shovel it in with the with the spoonfuls to say you need guilt to push you to God. Open with me the book of 1 John. We've been in 1 John this, we're going to be in it all summer long. You're going to find, you're going to find 1 John towards the back of your Bible. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, go to the very back and just page forward a couple pages. You're going to get through the book of Revelation. You're going to see um, Jude. You're going to see some very small books back there. And you're going to eventually come to this book called 1 John. The heart this morning is that every one of us walks out of here, no matter where you're at in your journey with God and your journey with Jesus, we walk out of here understanding this core central truth. God is for you. He is crazy about you. He's radically in love with you. He's moving in your direction. And there's absolutely no reason for me to hide from him. Shame and guilt has no place. No, no, it, it, shame and guilt should not be a part of what we do as people who follow Jesus. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 8, but just as far as recap. We're going through the book of 1 John because it says in chapter 5, verse 13, he gives the purpose of the book. He says, I am writing so that you can know for certain what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christ follower, and ultimately the language that John uses there is what it means to have eternal life. I am writing so that you can be certain that you'll be in heaven one day. I am writing so that you can know what it means to be a Christian. Five very short chapters and five very black and white. There is no, John doesn't mince words. He's very black and white this morning. Now, the very first subjects we saw in, in the, just as a sake of review, chapter one, when he started out, he gave some introductory comments. And then the very first subject he dives into is, is, in my opinion, the most important subject when you start down the road of spiritual growth. And that is, who is God? Who is God will shape so much of my life. Who he is. 
And that's what John starts with. God is light. He makes a declarative statement. There is this radical, radiant, beautiful, magnificent, glorious God. He has created the universe. He has created you. He's created me. And he is here. He exists. And it talks about who he is. And then it shifts to this beautiful picture of if you have fellowship with him. We talked about this two weeks ago. If you claim to have fellowship with him, then you, you also must be in the light. You can't be in darkness. And when you are in the light, the second truth that really comes up is we are designed to do life together. I'm not designed to live isolated. When I have fellowship, when I'm in relationship with God through the person of Jesus, it means then I am close with you who are also in fellowship with God. So he introduces these two radiant images and pictures. Who is God? And we're not designed to do life as an island. Now comes, to, in my opinion... <laughs> The subject that, that he that really dives into and, and doesn't just mention briefly but goes into depth with, it's the subject of sin, guilt, forgiveness, and that whole ball of wax. Sin is going to come up repeatedly in this book. It makes a lot of sense because the book is about fellowship and intimate relationship with God. So if you're going to talk about a relationship with God, it's natural that you talk about sin and what do you do with it. So verse 8, we start right out. Verse 8 says this. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Skip verse 9 because we're going to talk about verse 9 in a minute. Look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. We're sinners. And what I have found... <laughs> is we'll read this verse, and a lot of us want to move through it and jump right into verse 9, because verse 9 is loaded. It, it is an amazing verse. We, we look at verse 8, and we say, well, you know what? I know that I'm a sinner. We know it. But the reality is this. Do I truly know and believe that I'm a sinner? Do you really believe it? We say it. We give lip service to it. But do you own it? Can you name the sin that is present in your life? Can you call it what it is? And what I have found in my own personal life is that is a tough thing for us to do. We hate owning this verse. We can't stand it. Here's what I've watched happen in my own life. I find that so often in my life, I feel this sense of guilt. This sense of the fact that I am lacking in something. I don't measure up. I'm not hitting the standard. And in all areas of life, I find that at times, and I need to work, so what I do is I work really, really hard. And what ends up happening then is when you work hard, you begin to live pretty good. And most of us in this room live pretty good lives. We're good people. We work really hard to be good people. I have no argument with that. So what we begin to do is we say, sure, you know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not perfect, but here comes this, the danger slips in, but look at them. We love the news. We love gossip. We love watching other people tear people down. Do you know why we love that? We love negative news. I mean, you look at the news, how much of our news is positive? Positive news doesn't sell. It doesn't attract viewers. I think, a look, I look at movies and entertainment. So you look at this vile carnage and horror that you see in so many movies today. And what it does, I think, for a lot of us is it isolates us from them. And I begin to say, you know, my life, I'm a sinner. I get it. But now that's sin. And we begin to separate. We begin to pull out. Another thing I find that we do is... It, at times in my life, as we begin to look at our failings, our sin, as though we're a victim. You say, what does that mean? Well, we begin to say, well, Adam, if, if you really understood my life, if you lived with my mom or my dad or my husband or my wife, you would understand why I am the way I am. If you came to school with me and, and got picked on like I do, you would get why I am this way. If you, if you have been through half of the suffering that I've been through, you would understand why I am this. And we live as though, and, and those things are true. They're hard things to process and work through. And it takes grace and mercy and others to help us navigate some of that. But the reality still is what we begin to do is we shift and we look at my problem and we shift it external and say, well, it's their problem. I am this way because of that. 
I am this way because I don't have money. I am this way because I came from the family I did. I am this way because I have the job I do. I am this way because, and we, we externalize so much of this. This came to light to me when I came out of Charlotte. Some of you know my story from Charlotte. I went down there to plant a church. It did not go well. But when we were there, um, my, I emotionally imploded in a lot of ways. And as I kind of cracked and began to fall apart, it was interesting to listen to some of the counsel I received from other people. Because, see, they'd look in at my life and they'd say, well, Adam, you have a mortgage of a home that you've had now for a year paying on back in central Pennsylvania up near State College. You're paying lease, a very expensive lease, on a place in the inner city Charlotte. You're overextended financially. Adam, you've got three very small children in a 900-square-foot home with, with a wife, and that home is also your office. Adam, you're trying to do a church plant, they would say. And church plants are not easy. Do you know the reality of a church plant that those of us in a church like this don't get? In a church like this, existence is all but guaranteed. We're going to be here tomorrow. You're going to have a place to come next week. Death of a church like this happens slow and over years. A church plant is just like any business startup. It can end tomorrow. You're struggling with 30, 60 people. You're fighting for income. You're doing everything you can, and all your energies are trying to get this thing off the ground, and you are struggling and running hard. So they'd look at me, and they'd say, Adam, you're stressed out. It wasn't until we got out of that environment and I sat down with someone outside of myself who was able to say, Adam, you know what? That stress is no excuse for the way you spoke to your spouse during some of those times. That stress is absolutely no excuse, Adam, for the way you acted and responded. Yes, and he walked with me graciously and lovingly and he said, you know what, Adam? God loves you. God is for you. But you are living with shame and guilt. And what you are doing with that shame and guilt is externalizing your, he says, just sit down and call it, name it for what it is, Adam. You are a sinner. You don't embrace that very well. You spoke with venom to your spouse. And I never forget when it came out of us, he actually used the word abuse. And I, my ears just shuddered because I'm like, I didn't abuse my wife. But what it illustrated was how hard it is for us to name it. Maybe it's adultery for you. You say adultery. If you lust after someone who's not your spouse, God calls it adultery. Can you sit down? And can you, and this is what this, this counselor said to me is, Adam, you've got to sit with the weight of that on your chest, that you are a sinner. So I look at verse 8, and I, my challenge to us is don't just gloss through verse 8. We are sinners. And if I can't start there, the reality is God wants us to start there and understand that we can't fix this. We need outside help. So then comes verse 9. Verse 9 is an absolutely amazing, amazing verse. If you don't have verse 9 memorized, I'd encourage you to do so. I'd encourage you to put this on your refrigerator, on your computer at work, maybe on your keychain, on your smartphone, stick it everywhere you can, on your dashboard, your car. This verse is a hallmark verse of the Christian faith. Verse 9. So verse 8 says, you're a sinner. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. Do you know what confess means? I love this. The Greek word, I'm not a Greek scholar, I rely on other tools, so I don't say this out to be smart, but the Greek word, as I understand as I read from others, the Greek word literally means for confess, to say the same thing. So you know what you're doing when you confess? You're acknowledging to God what he already knows. There's no need to hide. He knows it. He knows. He knows your every struggle. He knows what you are battling with in your heart right now. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows how you spoke to your spouse. He knows how you're treating your friends. He knows what you're doing with your kids. He knows what you're doing on the computer at 2 a.m. in the morning. He knows. And when I confess, all it means is I am just simply agreeing with him. I am letting him know I see it and I'm aware of it. I agree with you, God. Confess. It's the first thing it mentions. 
powerful. There's absolutely no need to hide. Now, here's the next thing that's interesting. There are two attributes of God given here. It says he will forgive, and it's, in the, the, it's banked on who he is. One is he's faithful. That's a given. I get that. You know what it means to be faithful? We see this in weddings, right? The spouse, my, when I married my wife, Tanya, I agreed to be faithful to her. What does that mean? It means I'm not going to be off with someone else. I'm going to stick by her side through thick and thin, not just be there out of duty, but be there for her moving in her direction. And she likewise committed to me. God is faithful. Who we read about in this book, he is the same God today. He's here. He's faithful. Now, what's the next attribute he gives in this verse? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and what? Now, does that shock you? That shocks me. What is justice? What is justice? If I am given justice, what happens? If I go out and murder someone this afternoon, am I received justice? What is that? What's going to happen to me in this country where I live? I'm either going to be locked away for life or I'm going to get a lethal injection. Justice is giving someone what they deserve, righting the wrongs. So if I abuse my wife, justice would be abuse back, righting the wrongs. God requires justice. The thing that's interesting to me is here is this verse about forgiveness. Confess and he will forgive. And and I get that he banks on his faithfulness, but you'd also think you would say, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and loving. Maybe it would say he is faithful and merciful. Maybe it would say he is faithful and good, but it says he is faithful and just. Turn with me to Romans chapter three. If you're in John, the Romans, and you're not familiar with your Bible, back up towards the front, a number of books, you're going to find the book of Romans. Romans chapter three. This is powerful that we understand this. God says, I'm going to forgive you because I'm just. It doesn't on the surface looks like it makes a whole lot of sense, but look at Romans chapter three. It's again, another very famous verse. If you've been in church for any number of years, you've probably heard this verse. Even if you haven't been in church, you may have heard this verse. Romans chapter three, look at verse 23. Very famous verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is defined. Please understand this. Sin is defined in anything that falls short of the character of God. Anything, anything at all that does not land at his level is sin. So sin for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified and are justified. There the word is freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we are justified. If we sin, we violate God's laws. It says we are justified. We are made right. The right is wrong. The wrong is righted by and through Jesus. Okay. And it's done freely by grace. It's not something we earn. Now continue reading. This is powerful. Verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, meaning a payment, a payment for our sin through faith in the blood. There, this image of blood that we heard sung about not long ago. He did this to demonstrate his what? His justice. God is a just God. His justice. Because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So all the sins that happened back here, everyone that came before Jesus came, he did not punish their sin. He left it go. But God cannot let sin go. God's a just God. There must be payment for sin. Please hear me. There must be payment for the sin in your heart and your life. Now look at what he continues to say. So everything that came before, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice, not only past, but also present. As to be just and the one who justifies though, those who have faith in Jesus. So back in first John, he says, I'm faithful and I'm just. God is a just God. God demands payment for his, for sin. And what God is saying is Jesus came to pay the price. Here's the question I have. Why do I think I need to pay it then? I find people that sin, they they heap this guilt and shame on them, and they think I need to pay the price. Jesus has paid it. 
He is just. I love the attribute that slipped in there. He's faithful and he's just. He requires payment and he offered the payment. All it's required of me is to embrace his payment. I don't need to turn around and repay it myself. So his justice guarantees our forgiveness. Now there's a couple other things here. It says, it says he purifies us. He cleans us. He forgives us. I want to look at um, Psalm 103. Actually, I want to look at Proverbs first. Let's look at Proverbs first. Proverbs 28, 13. It says, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds what? There's no need to hide. There's absolutely no need to hide. Another one, Psalm 103. Powerful verse. We looked at this section actually last week for Father's Day. For as high as the heavens above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. God has radical love for those that are moving in his direction. As far as the east is from the west, look at this. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, who are not hiding from him, but are running in his direction. He has compassion on, for he knows how we are formed. Look at this. This is so cool. He knows how you're formed. He knows that you're sinful. He knows that we have this propensity to wander and do bad things. He knows how you're formed. He puts you together. He knows what your mind generally wants to think about. He knows what you're passionate about, how you're gifted, what you run towards, what he has wired you to do. He knows you intimately. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we're frail. God knows this about us. And he says, when you confess, I forgive as far as the east is from the west. You think about it, that's a cool thing. Because as far as we're going to head on vacation this week and we're going to drive, we're going to drive to the beach. We're going to drive east. Now, if I would continue to drive east and go across the Atlantic Ocean, continue to drive and continue to drive, when am I going to start going west? Never happens. I'm always going east. And that's what he says. As far as the east is from the west, the two never come together. You, it is separated. God wipes you clean and makes you pure. I want to mention one thing I found in my heart and my life that may be helpful for some of you. Forgiveness does not mean consequences go away. See, we're talking about shame and guilt. Consequences are different from forgiveness. God has established life to run in such a way that we reap what we sow. consequences do not go away. I'll never forget this. When I leave Charlotte and I'm sitting with the reality and the weight on my chest of some of the choices that I made in Charlotte that were not healthy or good. They were wrong. They were sinful. And I remember sitting there and I remember the trust that had been violated between my wife and I. I didn't cheat on her. I didn't go out and do anything horrible that would, but I spoke to her at times in ways that were very unhealthy and it, it begins to erode after a while the relationship So suddenly I come out of that and I go to God and say, God, please forgive me. And I know he has forgiven me, but guess what happens in any relationship? Then when you go to step back in with the other person, do they just forgive? They may forgive, but does it just all of a sudden go like this? There were consequences for my poor words that came out of my mouth. I think of, I've shared in the past that I did not get married a virgin. And I'll tell you what, it brought great pain and carnage because God did not wire us to continue to connect with people physically and intimately. It's like the post-it note. You keep sticking it, it eventually loses its stick and falls off. And I'll never forget coming into marriage. I I had a wise mentor say to me, he said, Adam, please know this. And this was so wise of him. He said, sex before marriage will always impact sex after marriage because, because Adam, you have designed and you have lived your whole high school career and, and now into young adulthood. It was all about that intimate relationship was about feeding your desire. Beautiful married sex, the way God has designed it to be is gorgeous. And it's not just about feeding your desire. It's about caring for another person and coming together with deep union and passion. It's to mirror the relationship that God has with us. 
But what I found is because of my poor choices, there were consequences to my choices. And when I got married, there were things internally and internal battles that Tanya at times knew nothing about. But I am fighting these internal battles because I'm trying to relearn my whole orientation towards the physical world in in relation to that. And I'm trying to unpack all this and, and work through it. It was consequences to my choices. Now, here's what I, why I say all this. What I found myself doing when I live with those consequences is I'd shift back to guilt and shame as though God didn't forgive me. It's like, well, there's consequences, so he still must be mad at me. No. God has given us consequences as discipline at times so that we don't go back to these things. I'd love to go into this more, but I, I want to keep moving through the text. If, you're, if this is an area that you wrestle with, I'd encourage you to look at the 2 Samuel 12, 11 to 14. Just look at it this week in your quiet time. It's a story of David and Bathsheba. It's a story, David is radically forgiven, but he still suffered horrid consequences, even though he was forgiven. Terrible consequences. Death of a baby, the revolt of a child who basically threw David out of the kingdom, all because of his poor choices, but he was still forgiven and he didn't need to live with shame and guilt. Now, back to the text. We already looked at verse 10, kind of with verse 8. Again, it just repeats it. Look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now, chapter 2. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. So this is some powerful truth here. This is going to talk about Jesus. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole entire world. Jesus is talked about here in a powerful, cool way. Now, here's the first thing I think it's interesting. Look what John says, the first thing he says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not what? He's writing, so he talks about this grace and mercy and forgiveness. And all of a sudden he says, don't sin. I'm writing so you don't sin. Here's why he says this. I have found, I think what John probably experienced in the first century, I've found to be true still today. A lot of times when we talk about freedom, about grace, about mercy, about God working in us and for us, what I hear people do is they begin to pull back and they get nervous. And here's why they get nervous. They'll say things like this. Well, then people will live however they want. If it's all about what God has done for you, not about you working hard in a religious system, then people are going to do what they want. I've heard things like this. They will take advantage of this grace and forgiveness. That what, what I ultimately hear is people say that if, if you don't have this fear, this being afraid of God, and you don't have this guilt system to stop them and the rules to keep them in line and keep them in bounds, then people will go and do whatever they want. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, again, you can look at it this week, he says no. <laughs> he kind of dealt with that thinking. He, he t- treats it sarcastically there. Like he says, what? So you're going to go on to continue to sin so that grace abounds all the more? He says, absolutely not. John does the same thing here. He says, I'm not writing this to you sin. I'm simply saying that when you do sin, you have grace and forgiveness on your side because you're going to continue to sin. What I have found to be true is I think the same thing these writers actually grab hold of is the reality that he who has been forgiven much loves much. I find that people who abuse grace, who abuse forgiveness, who go out and do whatever they want because God has forgiven me, I question whether they even know Jesus very honestly. Because that's not the gospel and the truth of Jesus that I read about in the pages of Scripture. What I read about in the pages of scripture are people who come face to face, like we saw in that video, with an unbelievable God of mercy and of love who is for them and moving in their direction. I find, like I do in Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman who comes and kneels at Jesus' feet and this radical picture of this sinful woman here and these incredibly do-good religious people over here. And I find her understanding who she is and she weeps and she cries at Jesus' feet. And these guys over here are sitting there condemning her and thinking, oh my goodness. And they're condemning Jesus and saying, if Jesus had any clue what kind of sinful woman is touching her. He he obviously can't be the Messiah. He obviously can't be God because he has no clue who's touching her, touching him. He turns around and he says to him, guys, I have something to tell you. He who has been forgiven much loves much. 
when we grasp and we understand what we have been forgiven, the grace of God that has poured out in our direction, the cost that it cost our heavenly father and the person of Jesus, when we really get our head around that and grace enters our lives and we come alive, you are alive and you don't go back and abuse grace. You don't go out and do whatever you want. You are radically in love with Jesus and you chase after him in every way you know how to. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're going to continue to struggle, but you are running hard because you're in love with Jesus. So people that come to me and say, well, Adam, if you just preach grace and you just preach God is for you, well, then, then people are going to do whatever they want. I, I say, you know what? Let them go do what they want because they really don't know Jesus. And they need to hear the gospel of Jesus preached to their heart. They need to understand that they're sinful, sinful people and that that sin radically separates them from a loving God. John gets that. He says, we know you're sinners. John says, when you do this, the goal is not to sin, but when you do, please continue to remember that you have a loving heavenly father. Look at what it says about Jesus. I want to do a brief theology lesson here because this is so, this, these verses are packed. It's so important to be able to think deep on this too. I want to challenge our minds a little bit and push us a little bit in this. But if anyone does sin, it says in the middle of verse one there, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. The term you may hear and as you read doctrinal statements is Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter four through five and six talk about this. Ephesians chapter one mentions this. It says that Jesus, what he came to do, he came, he paid a price, which we're going to talk about in a minute. He then, you know where he went after he paid, he died, he rose again. Do you know where the Bible says he is right now? Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven at the right hand of God. I think we mess this up with our kids. We tell Jesus, we tell kids to ask Jesus into their hearts. That's really not (laughs) grammatically accurate because Jesus doesn't ever enter my heart. The Holy Spirit does. Jesus is the right hand of God. And you know what he's doing there? This is cool. This is awesome. Do you know why he's there? Ephesians chapter one says he sat down. Now that's so powerful because when you sit down, you're done working. I was out working, getting ready for vacation this way, working hard yesterday. I came in and get, what did I do when my day's done? I sit down, prop my feet up, take a break. It says in the Bible, he sat down a clear declaration that his work is finished. And now he is there in heaven talking to God, the God who has made you, who has wired you, who put you together. He is talking to him. And what's he talking to him about? Us. That is so cool. So when I blow it, what is he doing? If I have, am a person who has embraced Jesus, if I am a person who says I can only come to God because of Jesus, if I am that and I've confessed my sins and I've embraced Jesus, Jesus is there talking to God about me. And it says in the book of Hebrews that he has walked in my shoes so he knows what it's like to live in this sinful, broken world. And he's there saying to God, hey, God, see Adam down there? He's hurting right now. He's struggling I get what it's like. Have mercy on him because he has embraced me. So Jesus intercedes. He does something else that's really cool. The second thing is, and it's a term that the NIV Bible removes, and I'm not crazy about it because what they put in its place doesn't fully grasp the heart of the original language. But it says in verse 2, see where it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In some of your older translations, you're going to see this big fancy word called propitiation. He is the propitiation. Propitiation is a big fancy word. I want to break it down for us because it's so much more than just atoning sacrifice. It's so much more than just a payment. Propitiation is appeasement, satisfaction. What's he satisfying from? Here's the really cool thing. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint. When the Hebrew Bible, when they translate all the Hebrew texts into the common Koine Greek language. It's, they have what they call the Septuagint. The Septuagint throws this word in that means this propitiation word. And they're using the exact same word that's refers that, that they use in the old Testament for the mercy seat of God. Now here's what the mercy seat is. In the old Testament, you had this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. 
It's not like today where we can just pray to God wherever and God is everywhere present. God in his, what's called the Shekinah glory, God's radiance would hover over this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark was a couple things. One of the things inside this, inside this box was the Ten Commandments, the law, the tablets were actually inside the box. Then what you had on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat. And then, so it's the, the Ten Commandments, the mercy seat, and then the glory of God would hover above. The priest would come into this area. They would come bringing the sacrifice that the people brought to the, to the altar. Do you know what was put on the mercy seat? Blood. When the animal was killed, they would pour the blood out on the mercy seat. Now catch the imagery here. God in his Shekinah glory, the law underneath that has been broken, and what separates it? The blood. It's a picture of the appeasement. It's a satisfaction. God looks down and he sees the blood. Now, it's, it's important to understand that those people, we just read in Romans chapter 3, they were looking forward to Jesus. We look backwards. They were looking forward to what Jesus did and was going to do. Bringing blood, not saying, I know I'm all clean because I brought this blood. They're looking forward to the Messiah and the promises of God. Poured out on this mercy seat. So it says here in John, Jesus, in essence, has satisfied God. We can't. Jesus does. It is a cool, cool thing. A cool concept to think about. As I close, I want to tell a story. Someone who gave life to me. I graduated from college. I head off to to my first official, full-time, paid pastoral position. I come into a church with a pastor there who's been there much like Bethany in the context of Bethany. He was there 20, I think it was six years at the time. And I come into that church. He is a man that I love dearly, but we were, we were oil and water. I mean, we were so opposite. We could, I couldn't picture two more men being opposite and more different than what we were. I was a big picture thinker. He was a next step thinker. I was radical and huge about sports. I think he at times struggled to even know who the Eagles were. Not really, but I mean, it was just sports were not his thing. I mean, in every possible way, we were different. And there's one area we were different and he spoke into my life and he gave life to me that I don't think he has any concept what it really did and how it altered the course of my life. I'm sitting with him one day. I was only there maybe a couple months and he's beginning to observe something about me. And he says, Adam, I noticed you're a perfectionist. You are driven. You work really, really hard and you push yourself at great levels, to great levels. So he looks at me and he says, my concern is, Adam, my concern is what happens when you fail? I looked at him and thought in mind, here's what I was actually thinking. I didn't say this to him. I'm thinking, well, I don't. (laughs) What a dumb question. I've grown up thinking failure is not an option. That's just how I live life. Failure, I am going to go and I'm going to push hard and I will succeed no matter what it takes to get the job done. I will succeed. But he saw this about me and he said, Adam, that concerns me because internally, I don't think you know what to do with failure. You are driven by your guilt. Driven by my guilt. You are working your tail off to make yourself better. Just stop and embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. I remember thinking, I've embraced the grace of Jesus. I love Jesus. Then he'd quote to me his famous, he loved this verse. He would, he'd love this verse. Turn with me to Romans 8. This is, this is too important not to look at this yourself. Romans, if you're in Romans 3, you know where that was. Just pack a few pages. Romans chapter 8. This is the verse he would quote to me. He'd read this to me and he'd quote this and he'd say this. And I, as I watched him live this out, it began to penetrate my heart. Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says this, it says, therefore, all that Jesus has done, Paul just wanted this huge theology lesson. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are what in Jesus. He said, Adam, stop working. Embrace the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. God is for you. The Bible, he would say, goes to great lengths, great lengths to assure us that we do not need to be afraid of God. 
John chapter 3. You know what John chapter 3 says? Some of you know this verse. You've seen it at sporting events and hung around. John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it goes on to say in that chapter, Jesus came not to condemn the world but to what? Save the world. And you continue reading. You know what it says? But evil men love darkness. So what do they do? They hide. We don't need to hide. Jesus came. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're broken. He knows we can't fix it ourselves. He came to fix it for us. And when we embrace Jesus, Romans chapter 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. God is for you. He's on your side. He's moving in your direction. And then this pastor would look at me and say this, Adam, the problem with your guilt is it doesn't allow you to deal with the real problem. Like, What does that mean? He'd say, the problem is you're working so hard to deal with your guilt and your shame, you aren't dealing with the sin in your life. You continue to wreak havoc in other people's lives and in your own life because you are running away from your guilt and not dealing with your issues. I thought about that more. I dug around with that and that probed me and challenged me. And I thought about that and I thought, you know what? Here's the cool thing. If you're still in Romans 8, look at verse 12. You know, the amazing thing is, (laughs) the amazing thing is, again, this freedom in Christ, this, this lack of guilt, it still does, it does not, God says there's no condemnation. It doesn't say there aren't still consequences. It doesn't say there isn't still accountability. And it doesn't say that you still aren't challenged to live in some way. Because look at what it says in verse 12. Therefore, brothers... We have an obligation because of this. You're obliged. I mean, you're compelled, you're pushed, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You don't need to be afraid of God, but you receive the spirit of sonship and by Him, by Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. The word is daddy. So this message of there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, it doesn't let us off the hook. It actually challenges us to live deeper and compels us to live more. And Jesus says, and Paul says the same thing here. How I live is going to determine for many life and death. But when we can't get off the guilt that we love so much, we miss the reality of what it is that I'm called to do and take care of and face and work with and deal with and, and live out in the role of a husband, a father, a pastor, and just a citizen of this country. Because I'm spending all my time with guilt and shame and not the freedom that I have in Jesus. Final thing I'd say is, um, I think the powerful truth of this is that when people are feeling bad about themselves, the answer is not to get them to feel good about themselves, some kind of hype up their self-esteem. In a lot of ways, that's a dead end. The answer is to get them connected to Jesus Christ and the love that he offers And the more I feel connected to love and to Jesus, the more I'm accepted. Do you know what we do? The more I don't worry about whether I feel good about myself or not. Think about this in marriage. When I know my wife is for me, when she expresses it, and it's clear to me, when I know for certain, do I walk away and think, oh, I'm such a bad husband? I don't. In fact, she just said something to me recently. You know, when I really praise you, it really means a lot to you. I said, it does. It does to all of us. When another in human relationship, when we know they're for us, we stop worrying about how awful we are. We just live with them with boldness and courage. Jesus is the same way. So please hear me as I close in prayer. God is for you. There is absolutely no reason to hide. He has come to erase shame and guilt so that you can deal with the realities of life. And run hard and run bold and run fast in life and live strong and confident. So please, as I close in prayer, if you're here this morning and you've struggled in that relationship with God, can I encourage you to rekindle that? 
If you're here this morning, you're not in a relationship with God. If you, if you do not know for certain, if you were to die today, whether you'd spend eternity with God, can I encourage you to take care of that today? God is for you. Talk to the person you came with. Come up and talk to me following the message. But in some capacity, deal with that today. I'd encourage you to step out. It's okay not to be okay. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I think of all the carnage that I have caused in life because of my own shame and guilt. And God, I'm not unique in that. I'm not special. Shame and guilt is brutal. It's ugly. It wrecks havoc on our hearts and our lives. God, many of us live lives wondering, do we measure up? Do we have what it takes? Am I worth anything? Think of young people today who cut. I think of some of the people I talk to who are in pits of depression. I think of, as I just look around at our culture and our society, the brokenness and the heartache, and so much of it stems back to the, just the reality of shame and guilt. God, sin is ugly. Sin is gruesome. But God, you have come and you've wiped it away through the person of Jesus. You have given us the ability to live free and clear, to live pure, to live forgiven, to live boldly and confidently so that we can take on life and take on our issues and live in a healthy way. God, I pray for the person sitting here today who is, who is no doubt in a culture like Lancaster County, a religious, a driven, guilt-driven culture in so many capacities. I pray for the person who's here, God, who has lived with and struggling with even now, the guilt and the shame of wondering, do I have what it takes? Do I measure up? I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. I need to continue to hide and continue to work hard. I need to do all these good works to, to just make sure that I'm okay. God, would you touch them right now in a way that, that just they know it's you? And would you let them know in some capacity today that you are for them and that you love them and that you have come, as it says in Romans 8, 1, not to condemn, but to offer hope, to offer life, to offer freedom, to offer forgiveness. There still may be consequences to past actions. There still may be things they need to be held accountable for. But God, may they walk away and know and live for the confidence that you are for them and that you love them. And God, those that have walked into this room this morning that don't know you, who can honestly say, you know what? I'm not sure where I'm at with God. I'm not sure if I were to die today where I'd spend eternity. God, would you touch their heart? And would they be bold and reach out and talk to those around them and say, hey, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And God, would it be so cool to have someone step into that new relationship with you and be able to call you daddy today? That would be awesome. But God, all of us, we close in song here. May we sing out with confidence and boldness and know that you are for us, that you're a good God and that you love and you love deep and wide as far as the east is from the west is where you've placed our sin. May we come to you needy and broken and honest, gut level honest and own who we are. Allow that to, the weight of it to sit on our chest and then be moved with the forgiveness that you offer. And then God watch as we then live radically with love towards this world because those who have been forgiven much in turn love much. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.